0: Well, good morning. morning. Welcome once again to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be here in the house of the Lord this morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for this opportunity. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. God, I just pray that You'd be with us, that You'd encourage us. Bless us as we look at Your Word. Help us to see what we need to see, to learn from it, to grow by it. God, I pray that This service, we would be worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And God, I pray the same for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning. God, I pray, especially for our friends at Spruce Head uh, Community Church, God, that you would bless them, encourage them, and God, just encourage them in the gospel and help them to uh, just be used of you to reach this community. God, I pray that as we reflect on the great need that exists around us, God, that we would be faithful. In following you, faithful and being bold for your glory, God, that we would lay down our own lives and seek instead to, instead of seeking our own will, to seek your will, and God to seek to uh, see others praise your name. And God, I thank you again for your grace. Thank you for your Son Jesus, who makes all of this possible. And pray all these things in His name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Second Corinthians. I just noticed something. I went. I do that every, so I record the sermons, this has nothing to do with anything, um, I re- we record the sermons, and I upload them every week, and every week I have to edit out a little tick that I do before I start reading the text. I don't know why I do it, but every week I have to edit out that little part, so hold me accountable. If you hear me going, just stop, make me stop somehow, wave a hand, something. All right, so anyway, we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, And we've been seeing how Paul is writing this letter to this church, these people whom he loves, this church where he pastored for a a year and a half, which is really not that common for Paul to stay in one place, to minister to these people for an extended period of time. And there's some issues that are apparent as we worked our way through the book of 1 Corinthians and now as we're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, there's some issues that he's addressing and he's trying to strengthen them in the truth of the gospel. He knows that many in the church in Corinth are true believers, that they are truly Christ's bride, but he wants them to grow in their walk with the Lord. And with that in mind, we come to 2 Corinthians. Today we're going to be looking at all of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, so if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is Our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are here in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him." For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him." May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. This passage, as with the passage that we looked at last week, talks a lot about death. And death is interesting in our culture. I think it's oftentimes something that people don't want to talk about. And yet, it's universal. That every one of us, will, that our bodies are dying. And there's this universal fear in our culture that exists of death. Because there's this inevitability and it can't be ignored. Although we try, we want to try to ignore that death is real. Maybe not as believers, but certainly the world does. Because there's so much uncertainty and fear surrounding it. I remember in High school biology class, I had a Christian teacher. Didn't know she was a Christian at the time. Didn't really care, wasn't that interested in class, let alone what the teacher thought. But at the time, in high school biology class, the teacher, she presented this idea. She asked us where man's origin came from. And she knew that she couldn't talk too much about it, but she knew that the students could. So she just asked us for her various opinions. Where does man come from? How did life start What do you think about life and what naturally led, in talking about the origin of man, naturally led to the end of man? As we talked about where do men come from, we naturally talked about where do men go? What happens when you die? And I remember being an unbeliever, a self-professed atheist in this class, sophomore year in high school, and I remember looking around the room and pridefully saying, all of you Christians are weak people who are just afraid of dying. So you've concocted this religion, you've concocted these ideas because you're afraid of dying. Well, I'm not. And I pridefully sat back in my chair and remained, unfortunately, in that state for far too long before God grabbed hold of my heart. But what I realize today is that they actually, the Christians in that room, were the ones who were not afraid of dying, and I was the one who was afraid of dying. As I looked at my life, I thought, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm going to do anything I want. I'm going to live life to the fullest. Whereas they're living their lives, they're not having any fun. Because they're afraid of dying. When in reality, the exact opposite was true. They were not living for this world. They weren't afraid of dying. They knew that this world would be over soon. They were living for eternity. I was living for the moment. Because all I had, I thought, was this world. All I had was these few brief years, and I might as well live it up. So this passage deals, as we looked at last week, with death. Paul talked about this momentary light affliction that we face in this world. And and while the trials are real, they're momentary, they're but a lifetime, and they're light. They pale in comparison to the glory of heaven and eternity with God. Paul talks about death. However, What I want you to understand is this passage doesn't answer all the questions we might have about when or what or how death happens or even eternal life, what eternal life looks like. That's not the point of Paul's uh, teaching here in 2 Corinthians or why he's writing to the Corinthians in chapter 5. Instead, he intends only to affirm to his audience that the Christian's transformation after death is certain. He's confident that Christians will be transformed in this life and ultimately in the life to come. So with that in mind, let's jump right into our sermon outline. The first point is, number one, our hope for the future, our hope for the future, or our future hope. Look at verse one with me again. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.1, he says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And this section may very well begin a new chapter in our modern day Bible. However, we need to remember that these chapter divisions are they are useful, but they're not inspired. They're instead man-made instead of God-ordained. This, this division, some commentators have argued, is one of the worst chapter divisions in all of Scripture. The division between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Because Paul's not starting a new topic Instead, he's continuing to speak of the hope that is laid up for him in heaven. So with that in mind, uh, look at 2 Corinthians 4.14. And you remember from 14 and following, he says, I know that he raised the Lord Jesus, he who raised the Lord Jesus will also r- with us raise us with Jesus and will present us with you. He says, I know that Jesus was raised and God's going to raise us too with Jesus. And then in verses 16-18, through he says, Therefore, in light of that truth, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." And then he goes right into verse 1 and says, For we know, in light of that we know, that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, a house eternal in the heavens. Now before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to briefly point out that Paul's hope Throughout this text is not to be confused with just blind optimism. Instead, the way in which I'm using the term hope in our outline and throughout this message is the way the Bible uses it. It's, it refers to confident expectation. You see, Paul is sure that God will indeed keep His promise and that God's going to give him a new body. And that's really what this text is referring to. When he's talking about this tent, he's talking about his physical body. This tent is going to be torn down, but we're going to have a building from God. And Paul is confident that God will keep his promise to give him a new body. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15 he wrote this, starting at verse 35, someone will say how are the dead raised? He says I realize this is a hard thing to understand. How are the dead, how are our bodies raised to newness of life? And with what kind of body do they come? And he says, "You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, you don't put a seed in the ground. It doesn't come to life and become a plant until the seed dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps, of wheat or something else. You don't put the whole plant in the ground. You put a seed in the ground. Not what it's going to be, but a seed of what it wants, what it will become. Verse 38, But God gives it a body just as He wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own all flesh is not the same flesh but there is one flesh of man and another flesh of beast and another flesh of birds and another of fish there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs differs from star in glory So also, the resurrection of the dead is the same, he says. It is sown a perishable body, and it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, and it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, he says, and raised in power. It is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. I never used to be quite as passionate as I am now about believers being buried in the ground. I'm not saying that that is as a necessity. I'm certainly not saying that cremation is, that Scripture prohibits it. But, but I think being buried in the ground is a great picture. Because it's a, it's a picture of planting a seed. We are planted into the ground like you plant a seed, expecting to be raised up. Expecting for our new bodies to sprout forward, so to speak. That's what Paul's picturing here. And he says, the body dies, but it's raised up to newness of life. See, Paul is sure that God will indeed keep his promise and rescue him from his body of death and give him a whole new body. That's why he uses the present tense in verses one, or verse 1 of our text. He says, we have a building from God. He's using the present present tense to describe an action that is about to happen or that is going to happen because he is so confident that it will happen. It's as good as done. If God said it, then we can trust that it will indeed happen. Paul has no problem saying, we have this body. We have this building because God said it would happen. Last week we talked about how God is mighty to save, He's faithful to save, and He's true to His promises. And in light of that, Paul can claim this promise as well. And he can claim it, even though it's going to be realized in the future, he can claim it with certainty in the present. Now notice that Paul's metaphor regarding the human body changes in chapter 5 from chapter 4. Last week when we were in chapter 4, remember, Paul referred to the body as an earthen vessel or a clay pot. He said, we're but clay pots, and I likened that to the little disposable containers that you get at the grocery store. The, the, I, Kim can send me to work because it's with it because it's not valuable and it's temporary anyway, and she knows it's probably not going to come back. And he says, our bodies are like that. They're just clay pots. They're fragile. They're fleeting in nature. But in chapter 5, however, he begins to refer to the human body as a tent. Again, the idea is that the body is both weak it's fragile, it's temporary, it's transient. So this idea of being weak and temporary. How many of you have been camping? Really camping? Not camping like, you know, I've got a fifth wheel, and, or not that kind of, not even camping like a pop-up. I'm talking about real camping, like tent camping. I remember a guy that um used to be friends with a long time ago, he said, I don't understand why anybody would ever camp. So I spent 15 years in the army. I never want to see another tent as long as I live. See, camping, when you, live, when you spend any amount of time, and about the most time I've spent in a tent is probably about a week, when you spend any amount of time in a tent, you begin to realize this tent really, it's just not the same as a building. It's kind of fragile. It's, it, it serves its purpose, but it's definitely temporary, about a week is the most amount of time you want to spend in a tent, because it's not the strongest nor the most durable. So Paul likens his earthly body to that of a tent, and he compares it to his heavenly body, which will not be like a tent, but instead strong and lasting like a building. And furthermore, he says this building is both made by God and eternal in the heavens. In other words, buildings are strong and lasting, but they're still made by human hands. This building is strong, and it's lasting. It's it's not going to fall down tomorrow. It's likely to remain strong, to stay standing for a long period of time. This physical building. But our heavenly bodies are like that. They're strong and they're lasting, but they're both But they're made by God so they're infinitely stronger and they're eternal, he says. They're eternal as they come from God. So what Paul is pointing to here is our future hope. Our hope is that though we have pain and sickness and trials and temptations in this body, in this life, that we have a hope stored up for us in heaven. That our hope is not in the things of this world, but instead our hope is in eternity. We know that God will rescue us from this body of sin and death. So having seen number one, our hope, now let's consider number two, our present reality. Our present reality. We have this hope, but we also need to consider the reality of where we live today. Look at verses 2-5 through with me again. He says, For indeed in this house... This tent that we're living in, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Once again, Paul changes his use of metaphors. Now, instead of comparing his earthly body to a tent and his heavenly body to a building, he compares his earthly body to being unclothed and his heavenly body to being clothed. He says, now we're unclothed, we're naked, but we will one day be clothed. He says, in this house, we groan, we long to be clothed. David Garland does an excellent job explaining this. He writes the following. He says, the translation groan for stenazo." does not imply here despair, agony, or mournful dejection, but is related to his hopeful longing. Paul does not groan from hopeless futility, but from an earnest desire to receive the culmination of our salvation that awaits us. One has said that sighs are the natural language of the heart. For Paul, sighing is the natural language of one whose heart has turned toward God and hungers for God's final redemption. He says, I groan, I long for God's final redemption. I long to be done with this body and instead to have a body that's not like a tent, but a body that's like a building. To have not uh, this body, that which is unclothed, but a, a body that's clothed. Paul addressed the same thing when he wrote to the church in Rome. In Romans 8, starting at verse 16, he said this, he said, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit testifies that we are children, that we know the Lord Jesus, and that God has chosen us, that we are forgiven of our sin, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us, the sufferings are real in this time, but they're not worthy to be compared to the glory of heaven. Verse 19, "...for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory." of the children of God. Creation groans, waiting for Jesus to return. This world and the way it works, things are broken, folks. And creation longs to see Jesus come back. Creation longs to see God make things right which are broken because of the fall, because of Adam's sin and our sin while we were in Adam. Verse 22, he says, This is Romans 8 again. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's painful. But it's painful. It's groaning. But it's looking forward to its intended outcome. It's not despairing. Instead, it's hopeful like childbirth. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That's why as believers, sometimes we say, I just want Jesus to come back. We say, Lord Jesus, return. Lord Jesus, this cold. Lord Jesus, this cancer. Lord Jesus, this world we're living in that has abandoned your principles and your ways. Lord Jesus, this job. Lord Jesus, whatever. We say, Lord Jesus, come back because of this world is just... it's the sufferings of this world, and then we go, but they're they're nothing compared to the glory of heaven. They're, They're small, they're minor in comparison. They're light, and they're temporary. They may last a lifetime, but they're still temporary. So we long for heaven. And here that we see that creation groans, it longs to be made new, just like we long to be made new because we long for the day when we throw off this tent and it's replaced with a building from God. I mentioned earlier, I spent about a week in a tent and you know, the first couple of days it's kind of cool and fun. And then like day seven, you're like, this tent, right? You just, you just want to throw it. And that's indeed what it, life is like inside the human body. It's, you know, I'm done with this tent. It's just, it's okay, but I know there's something better awaiting me. So we long for the day we are clothed, not unclothed. We long for our heavenly bodies. Notice also at the end of verse 5 that he talks about the Spirit being given as a pledge. He says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Speaking of the Holy Spirit here, uh, he speaks of the Holy Spirit given as a pledge. And the modern day Greek word that's used here, if you were to take this word, for pledge and implant it into modern day Greek. Now, we've got to be careful here. If we were to do that, it's the word that's used for an engagement ring. Now, we can't read the engagement ring meaning into what Paul did. We see this, I see this all the time. It's, it's not proper to do that. We certainly can't do that. Um, so, we can't say, Paul was talking about the spirits given to us as a, a sign like an engagement ring. They didn't have that same understanding of that word that we have now. But what that helps us understand is that what exactly scripture means or what this greek word pledge became known to mean over time that it was a down payment so to speak it was it was a guaranteed outcome that he says the holy spirit is given to you as a down payment for the eternal life that you will have So when you say, how do I know? When you get up in the morning and you go, how do I know that all of this is true? I'm struggling in my faith. Lord, I believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. And then you go, oh yeah, I have the Holy Spirit. He's working in me. He's promised me. He's the down payment. Because I have the Holy Spirit living in me, I know, I know that there's a future hope for me. That Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit that is living in me, He is a down payment. He points to the fulfillment of a promise. Look at Romans 8, uh, verses 35 through 39 real quick. Romans 8, starting at verse 35, says this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. The answer is no. None, of, none of these things. None of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. By the way, these are things we will face: tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril. These are these are not. Scripture doesn't guarantee that every one of us will face every one of these things. But the point is that these things are common. They're common to man this side of heaven. But these things will not separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 36, just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a pledge, and we can be confident in the future. And in that confidence, we groan. We long for the future. Now, I want to warn you I think there are two ways to groan. We can groan out of despair which is, I'm so sick of this life, I just want to be done. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I can get like this when I have the flu. or if, I can get like this if I have a sniffle, actually. I can be laying on the couch. Kim can have like, this horrible sickness, and she's still cleaning the house and taking care, of the, taking care of us. I get like a sniffle, and I'm on the couch going, I just want to die. Right? That's despair. That's, that's not the kind of groaning that we're supposed to have. Instead, we're supposed to groan out of confident expectation. But I know this is temporary, and I long for heaven. It's a sighing of the heart that wants to spend time, that wants to be united with Jesus physically, and wants to be free from this body of sin and death. So we can groan out of despair, but that's not what we're called to do. Instead, we're called to groan out of confident expectation. If we're groaning out of despair then we need to go back to our first point in the sermon outline. We need to go back to our future hope. We need to recognize that our hope is in heaven and that it's a very real hope and that these trials of life are momentary and they're light. In other words, point number one is the lens through which we need to see point number two. So having seen our future hope and our present reality, now let's consider our third and final point in our sermon outline. Number three, the intended result. The intended result. I want to kind of walk through um, these verses kind of step by step, so to speak. So first, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing our future hope, understanding our present reality, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. He says, knowing this, in light of all of this, and being of good courage, knowing that we have a future hope, even in this present reality, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. So when you you go to the doctor and he says, you know, I have some bad news, you don't walk by sight, but you walk by faith. When the trials of this life come. When you lose everything you own like Job did. You don't walk by sight, but you walk by faith. You say, you know, I I understand this present reality, but I have a future hope. And nothing, nothing can take that from me. And how do I know? I'm given a a deposit. I've been given a pledge. I've been given the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing about this process is that the Holy Spirit, He speaks into our hearts. Not only is He the pledge, but He's the one who reminds us of that future hope. He's the one who encourages our hearts and says, this this affliction, it's light, it's momentary. It'll be over soon. And it pales in comparison to the glory that you'll receive in heaven. So we walk by faith. The intended result, firstly, is that we walk by faith. Secondly, it's that we please God. Look at verses Look at verses 9 and 10, if you will. So we walk by faith. Number two, we please God. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Romans tells us, Romans 14, it says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, so that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This is speaking of believers. This is not speaking of unbelievers. The judgment seat of Christ is a time when believers will stand before Him and give an account for their lives, as Paul says in Romans and here in Second Corinthians. And the judgment, though, should not be seen as a time of con, con, uh, condemnation or a time of, of judgment whereby we are punished for our sin, instead the purpose is for rewarding believers for their faithfulness. The Bible is clear in romans eight one it says therefore there is that, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul even ends this very section in second Corinthians five, our last verse of today 's text he says, He who made him he made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There is no condemnation. He died on our behalf. But we can't miss the so that of 2 Corinthians 5.21. right? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Or the so that of... 1 Peter 2.24, which says, He Himself bore our sins on the cross. You're not going to stand before God and and have to pay the penalty, which you can't pay, by the way, for your sin. He bore your sin on the cross. There's no condemnation. What can separate you? Nothing from the love of God. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24, so that, Peter says, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore our penalty so that we might die to sin. And if we continue to live in sin, and we say, Jesus paid it all, Jesus paid it all, I'm going to do what I want to do, then we need to examine ourselves. As Second Corinthians tells us, to examine yourself to see if you are indeed in the faith. Do you understand Who Jesus is and what He did for you. Because when you do, you'll die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the point. You please God. So what is Paul talking about? If it's not being penalized for our sin, what does Paul mean when he talks about being recompensed for deeds done in the body, whether good or bad? He's not talking about, or he is talking about judgment, but he's talking about judgment for the purpose of reward. He's talking about how God will examine our lives and He who knows not just our thoughts, not just our actions, but also our thoughts and even the intentions of our hearts, He will reward what we have done. He's going to reward that which is done not for the purpose of pleasing ourselves, but that which we have done for the purpose of pleasing Him. And the smallest of things could reap eternal rewards when they're done for pleasing God see, sometimes we think pleasing God means going to church on Sunday, putting money in an offering plate, or preaching a sermon, or teaching a Sunday school class. The smallest of things, if you're cleaning the house, your house to the glory of God, there's reward in that. If you go to work, and you sell computers to the glory of God, or you fix computers to the glory of God, there's reward in that. When you're changing diapers, day after day, there's and you're doing it to the glory of God, there's reward in that. You see, there's reward in that which is done for the purpose of pleasing Him. This is clear in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. It was God who was doing this. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. It's really God's work. God who causes the growth, He says. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. Now if any man, verse 12, builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Everything we do in this body will be measured in light of whether it was pleasing to God or not. Therefore, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. That is the goal of the Christian life. It's not becoming an evangelist. It's not becoming a pastor or a deacon. Those things may be a way in which we are pleasing to God. But we have it as our aim to be pleasing to Him. And maybe that means as a housewife. Maybe that means as a musician. Maybe that means, as somebody who does maintenance, the point is that we have as our aim to be pleasing to God. In other words, when the quality of our work, the labor of our lives of our lives is examined, we want it to have lasting value. We want to be sure that the deeds done in the body have been pleasing to Him, that they won't be burned away, that they're not like, Straw or hay, but they have lasting value. And in that day, we will be rewarded. In that day, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So we walk by faith. The intended result is we walk by faith. We please God. And thirdly, and lastly, we persuade men. Try to get through this real quick here, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we're made manifest to God. And I hope that we are manifest to you also in your consciences. For we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. He says, Therefore, knowing these things and understanding the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And then in verses 14-19, through he reiterates the Gospel. He says, Christ is, died for all. Therefore, we're all called to die to ourselves and live for Him. God reconciled us to Himself through the work of Christ, He says in verse 18. Therefore, He's given us this ministry of reconciliation. God made us right with Him through the work of Christ on the cross. Therefore, we now point others to that reconciliation as well. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He says, not only do we walk by faith, not only do we please God, but we persuade men. We persuade men because of the truth of the gospel. And because of the Gospel, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, helping others be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors. We're representatives. We stand as ones who stand in the place of Jesus and say, be reconciled through the work of Jesus on the cross. As though God were actually speaking through us. When we send an ambassador to a foreign country, He represents this country. He speaks not only on behalf of The people, but also the president. He gets to stand in their place. And we get to stand in the place of Jesus and we say, look at what Jesus did for you. Be reconciled to Jesus. I appeal to you. I beg of you. The intended result is to persuade men. The intended result of this future hope and this present reality, that this longing that exists in us should spur us on to evangelism. I have a feeling that if we didn't long for heaven, that when we're happy living in this world, and if you're too comfortable in this world, I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot harder to walk by faith. That when you're comfortable in this world, you don't don't have trouble. So you don't walk by faith. Instead, you walk by sight. That's why it's hard for a rich man to enter heaven. Not because money keeps people from entering heaven but because it's harder to walk by faith and not by sight. When you have a fat bank account, it's not impossible. But it's harder. It's harder to please God. It's easier to please yourself. Right? And it's harder to persuade men. When you're, when you're longing, when you're suffering and you're longing for heaven, then you, want, you see others and you go, please, I just, I just want to walk by faith, Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm going through this, through this world and I'm longing for heaven and I want to please you and I want to persuade men because my hope's not here. It's so far beyond here. So by way of review, we have our future hope, our present reality, and the intended result. The intended result being that we walk by faith, we please God, and we persuade men. So here's the big question. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this message and apply it to our lives? Well, number one, we walk by faith. Right? We live in light of eternity. We walk by faith and not by sight. We remember the gospel. How do you walk by faith? You remember the gospel day by day by day. You look to your future hope. It's so easy to get caught up in the things of this world and to place our hope in our bank account in our homes, in our families, in our relationships. Instead, we say, I'm going to walk by faith because these things that I see, they can all be taken away in an instant. I'm going to remember the gospel. Number two, we please God. We live in light of the gospel. This is both as individuals and as a church. These both are. We remember the gospel individually. We remember the gospel as a church. And we live in light of the gospel. We ask ourselves continually, when we get up in the morning and we put on our shoes, we say, am I doing this to the glory of God? And when I go to work today, am I doing this to the glory of God? When we come to church and we say, is this glorifying God or are we lifting up Harmony Bible Church? What are we doing here? Are we building our kingdom or His kingdom? We need to make it our aim to be pleasing to Him regardless of our circumstances. Knowing that tough circumstances will come. And thirdly, we persuade men we share the gospel both individually and as a church. This isn't something that we can do just as a body and be off the hook as individuals. Nor is this something that we can do as individuals and be off the hook as a body. We need to plead with others. We need to beg others to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We need to beg others, to plead with others, to persuade others to respond to the Gospel now. We talked in Sunday school about how this is not, you can't argue somebody into heaven. Clearly, that's the case. Our job is to plead, our job is to be an ambassador. God will do his work, but he will do it through us, his voice in this world, and we are called to be a faithful ambassador. So we persuade men. So I challenge you. I challenge you to walk by faith, to please God, and to persuade men. And when you fail to do those things, then you need to step back and remember your future hope. Examine your present reality in light of your future hope, and then plead with others to know Jesus. I want to read a quick poem. I assure you it's quick uh, before we close. It's written by C.T. Studd, and some of you probably know at least a piece of this. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. We know that. Many of us have heard that before. I want to, to read the whole thing in its entirety to you. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life twill soon be past. only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then Lord help me with joy to say, only one life twill soon be past. only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife pleasing thee in my daily life, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes only one, now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life t'will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life t'will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be, if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for our future hope and our present reality. God, I thank you that you keep us from loving this world too much and instead longing for the future, longing for eternity with you, longing to see things which are broken, made right, God I pray that you would be with us that you'd encourage us in the gospel that you'd work mightily in our hearts and in our minds God I pray that we would seek to live lives that are appropriate appropriate to the future hope that we have and the present reality that the intended result would have its place God I pray that We would be eager to walk by faith and not by sight. God, that we would be eager to please you. And God, that we would be eager to persuade men the truth of your gospel. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.